0: you for bringing us together. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for worship. We thank you for all of the things that you've done that make it possible for us to know you um, on a level that, that is available to everybody, the, the, by just simply desiring more and moving closer and closer to who you are. You know, these songs, Lord, they, that's the point of worship, is they pretty much say, everything that we want to say, but sometimes words escape us, and that's the cool thing about the worship. And we are just so grateful for who you are. So, Lord, open our eyes. Uh, help us to see exactly what you want us to see uh, in this study. And and again, Lord, my prayer would be, probably will be for the remainder of this particular study, to not be, you know, caught up in the oohs and the ahs, but just to see how how important it was to you to reveal yourself to us in, in this incredible way. So we give you this time, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we looked at sort of the basics introductory of it last week, and we talked, um, a little bit about the, the language. We, I showed you the chart. I don't know, did anybody go online and check that out and get that put on your phone or anything? Yeah, that's really helpful, um, for those that want to do that. Uh, and, uh, so what we talked about is if you look on those charts, and the, and the way that we understand it, and this is what we talked about last week, remember there's the ancient aspect of this, or some, some would call it earliest Hebrew, and that's the pictograph, and then it moves from there and it goes to sort of middle, um, and, it, and it sort of starts to take on a bit uh, of a change. Uh, in the way the letters are formed, and then you get to the the third aspect of it, which is what they call Paleo Hebrew today. It's the one that I always have trouble bringing to uh, to the pulpit here because, for some reason, when I Put it. I've, I've got where my computer. I can type in Paleo Hebrew, but when I bring it in here, for some reason, it doesn't read it, and I don't, I don't know why that is. But whatever. Um, and then, of course, then there's what we call Modern Hebrew, and so we said with all of those, we're really going to focus on the the ancient, which is the pictographic, um, and uh, the 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 way that it was written. And we I showed you some uh, pictures. Uh, and some diagrams of what has been clearly identified by all as the earliest writing known, l- earlier than cuneiform. Cuneiform, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that or not, but if you ever see writing that they tell you is the oldest, and, and it's a bunch of triangles and lines and one triangle, and then there's a triangle with a line, and that's, this gives you your alphabet, and it looks all funny and stuff, that's cuneiform. And they, for a long time, claimed that that was the earliest. Well, it's not turns out it's not. The one I showed you there with the ox head and the, and the shepherd's staff, that turns out to be. And the only way they can decipher what those words mean is to apply it to Hebrew. And we're going to get a little better understanding of that here tonight. So we looked at that. So our focus is going to be on the ancient, the pictographic stuff, as well as the modern Hebrew. We're not going to worry about the paleo and all of that, though we could certainly do that. And I was tempted to, but it just gets, I think it just gets a bit muddled. Uh, if you try to do all of that, if you're if you're if this isn't something you do all of the time, it can be a bit uh, it can be a bit confusing. So so that's what we looked at. So we, we understood that that language. We have the other thing we understand is that the, the Hebrew language and the letters <clears throat> very different than the English because each letter, and in fact unlike any other language, um, each letter is a letter. It functions as a letter. But it's also a word. So like we talked about, the the nearest equivalent, one familiar to us, is the first letter of the alphabet, which is Aleph. So that's a word. Aleph is a word. It's not A, like our English A. There's a word to it. So not only does it function as a letter, but it has a, it's a word. And because it also has a numeric value, if you add those things up, it'll give you uh, what we looked at last week uh, with the Aleph that comes to 111. Uh, not three. Uh, it's, you know, so it's obviously the identity there is uh, speaking of the Godhead. We also said that uh, 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 there's, a, uh, there's, a, there's a sequence to those letters that when you, when you start breaking them down, you can understand when you're checking out words. One of the cool things about Hebrew is that it breaks down into... Uh, Hebrew is a, uh, a language based off of verbs where ours is ba- based off of nouns and because because when you know god creates and the people of those ancient times it was very important what 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 was happening around them and so their language is very very verb centric and what's interesting about the language is that you take any three letters Uh, of a word in in, in a verb form, and that is what they call the root. And you could chase that root even into the nouns and other things like that, and you'll find that they're all interrelated. It's all connected. It's truly amazing. It, It seriously is. So we talked about all of that stuff last week. Uh, we looked at how they did, and I already mentioned this, how they functioned as numbers, uh, and you know, much like the Roman numerals that we use uh, at times, uh, where we have uh, you know, the, the I and the capital I um, and the V uh, that function as, as different letters, the X, of course, the M, the C, all of these different letters. But in the Hebrew, each letter has a numeric value. So we talked about all of that. Now, why is this important? And I, I don't remember whether we got into this verse or not, but I'm going to pick it up again. So uh, even if we did, this is Zephaniah in the Old Testament. Now, Zephaniah is one of those books, it's like when you, you say, well, we're going to read from Zephaniah, it's like nobody in the room goes, oh, I was just reading from there this morning. It's just not one of those books that people read. Zechariah, yes, but Zephaniah—it's like this obscure, what appears to be this obscure book. You know, it's like Habakkuk. Most people can't even say it. They call it Habakkuk. They call it, you know, whatever. And so, so the, these these ancient books that we know were important, but we stay away from them because they're they're well, they're scary. Just the title, um, let alone getting into them. And so. So, but Zephaniah is a, is a truly like all the scriptures, it's God inspired, uh, and he had the prophet Zephaniah uh, record this for, for us. Now, once again, this is taken from, uh, you know, I'll let you know when we are, what translation, or I'll tr- do the best I can to try to, uh, to give you the, the language that we're speaking of, or the, the translation, I'm sorry. And this is the uh, scriptures. Uh, so this is the, scripture, the, the translation that tries to use the, the original Hebrew and the names, keeps uh, much of the stuff, you know, the same. So it's a, not an easy read, but I like it for purposes like this. So here's the Lord speaking through the prophet Zephaniah. And he says, therefore, wait for me, declares Yah. So that's Yehovah, Jehovah, Yahweh, whatever, okay? That's what you're seeing there in the Hebrew. Remember, right to left. Keep that in mind. We're going to be talking about this. Therefore, wait for me, declares, we're shortening it to Yah. It's just easier to say, and it is simply Yah uh, a couple of times in the Old Testament, Isaiah, and in the book of Psalms, so we're, we're okay to do that. Um, so, therefore, wait for me, declares Yah, until the day I rise up for plunder. For my judgment is to gather nations, Okay? not just the Jews, but to gather the nations, to assemble rains, to pour out on them my rage, all my burning wrath. Gee, this sounds like something we've talked about before. You know, maybe Jacob's trouble. For by the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. And it's, it's going because of, because of what they've done to his people Israel. That's why he's doing this, because they're, they're his covenant people. Verse nine, now watch. For then, when that time comes as it's approaching and as it ends, for then I shall turn unto the peoples a clean lip. Now you can see here, I've already put the down here, it literally says pure language. Okay? But oftentimes, because it has to do with the Hebrew, and you're going to see this in a minute, the word, uh, the Hebrew letter peh, which is represented by a mouth in the pictograph. Uh, in fact, that's how you say mouth in Hebrew is peh. Okay? And so that's what's being described here. But the idea here is, Uh, the pure language, a language that can't be tampered with. Because every other language can be manipulated. I hope you know that, right? You realize that what we're speaking here tonight and all of us are receiving and understanding is not the same English that was spoken in the days of King James. Okay, Elizabethan English, we call it. It's completely different. And if you've ever picked up a 1611, a King James, one of the original ones, um, you're going to, even though it's in English, you're going to have a tough time because it's, it sounds like a foreign language. It's just bizarre, but it's English. So in just a you know, few centuries, it has really changed. So, so what's being described here is a language, though, that is going to, and has always, in my opinion, stood the test of time and will continue to do so. You won't be able to manipulate it. Uh, that's that's what, what's being said here. For then I shall turn unto the peoples... Not my people, all the nations. For then I shall turn unto the peoples a clean lip, so that they shall call on the name of YAH. Okay? Shem Yehovah. That's what it says there, because name is Shem in Hebrew. So that uh, they'll call on the name of YAH to serve him with one shoulder, literally side by side. That's what's being described here. So what we're looking at, which we described last week, and I said this is the language uh, of, of heaven uh, because this is, these are the words that God used to create. And you can only understand the creation account in its depth in that language. That's the point of this study. So that's our goal is to look at the words that were recorded that God spoke when he created, because we understand by the days of creation in Genesis chapter 1, and by extension chapter 2, but in chapter 1, that everything that God does, and we talked about this last week, and, and Yah said, well actually it's, it's Elohim at that point, we don't know Yah yet, that's not till Adam comes in the scene, but anyway, and God said, so everything happens based off of his words. Well, those words are communicated like we looked at last week by stringing letters together which create words and the only way you get the depth and, the, and this, this full understanding is in the language that he actually spoke it in which is what he had, had it written down in and Moses compiled which we call, of course, the Tanakh. Well, we don't call it the Tanakh. We call it the Old Testament, the Torah, the law. That's what we're talking about. All right? So, we're going to start getting into this a little bit more. Now, don't panic over this, okay? We're just looking at all of the letters. Now, remember, it's Hebrew. We start on the right, okay? So here is the Hebrew alphabet. You can see that on the top. There you can see, Al, alef, bet, he, vav, zayin, he, chet. there's the verbal word. Tet, yod, kaf. You, see, you get the idea. And that's their equivalent right below that in the modern Hebrew which at, we've at least seen, you know, we can recognize it. Now, there's the number sequences of how it works, which is what we talked about last week. So you can see Alef through Tet, or, or we get the, the letters, uh, numbers, I'm sorry, one through nine. And then in the Kaf through the Tzadeh, that's the, the, the TZ, um, and that's the TZ sound, Zade. okay? Zion, we say Zion, or Zion, we change it to a Z, but it's tz- that's where that sound comes from. Um, that's your uh, 10 to 90. And then when you get to Kov, Reshin, and of course Tav, then you get into the 100, 200, 300, 400. So, you know, we, we showed last week how you would do this. So if you're going to say 352, so you, you would say, uh, what did I say? 300, 352. Okay, so it would be Shin, uh, Shin, uh, Nun, uh, Beit. Okay, that's how they would say 352. It's the three Hebrew letters, but that's what's going on. Now, underneath that, you can see this is the pictographs and you'll recognize that first one, okay, because that's the one we saw on the rock which has clearly been identified as the oldest writing ever discovered. And it's the, it's the number one, and over there the number 30. That's the lahmed, and it's a shepherd's staff. And I've explained many times before, this is where our Western American perspective comes from. Well, that can't be a shepherd's staff, it's upside down. Because we're sure shepherds carried the shepherd's staff with the crook at the top. No, they didn't. okay. The whole point of the crook was because sheep don't go where they're supposed to. And so they would use the hook to grab them and pull them and direct them. So we're the ones that have it upside down. So this is actually the way it is. But you can see what all of those letters, uh, what they look like uh, in that early writing. And then below each of those, you can see that again in the Hebrew language, um, I I forgot to say when we were talking about this earlier, I did not mention it last week, but each letter has a meaning. Okay, so you can see number one there, it's clearly an ox head, and it means strength, power, leader, and of course it obviously, because it's the first, it applies to God. And you can see bait there, and you can see what it means, and I'm just going to go across the top, but you can see uh, bait is the floor plan of a tent is what it is, you can see where you enter in and then you go inside the area. This is what the tent would have looked like when Abraham was there with Sarah and the Lord with two angels came up. Abraham was sitting in that open part and he sent Sarah in to cook for these guys. She would have went into that close part. Nobody was allowed in there unless the father allowed them. So that's where it comes from. Um, and then, of course, you can see that the, uh, the, uh, the, the gimel there is the foot. Uh, the tent flap, that's a flap that, you know, the, the flap that comes over the door and you flop it back. That's dalet. The hey the he is always interesting to me. Number five there, you can see that clearly it's, it's the idea of, wow, revelation uh, to behold. Okay. The thing that looks like a Y next to it is not. It's literally a tent peg. Okay, so they would drive the, the, the stake for the tent in. Notice how this all has to do with family to this point. What a shocker! Um, and uh, and uh, they would wrap the ropes around this. So their tent pegs weren't like ours, where they were just straight. This is what they looked like. The number seven there is Zion, and you can see that's a scythe, uh, uh, where you know where they where they would uh, uh, you know cut the wheat and all of that kind of stuff. Um, the uh, then the chet, uh, the fur wall is—you uh, can see there—it's like a window. Okay, uh, it's like—I'm sorry—it's it's like a wall that separates. It's a separation wall. Okay, the basket next to it is tet, where they would put the grain. Are you picking up in that period? Are you picking up a picture here? It all has to do with family and providing for the family. Okay, and then there's the arm. You can see that's the yod, and it in particular applies to God's work. But it also clearly applies to us, and it can mean to throw even and stuff. But again, it's the idea of work. There's the palm of the hand there, um, which is the kaf, the number 20, the lamed, we already talked about. The mem, uh, there you can see that looks like, you can see where we got our M from. Okay, just saying. Um, when you get to the Paleo Hebrew, the Paleo Hebrew nun looks a lot like. Ours, okay. So, so this is is water again. Everything so far has to do with living, with surviving. Um, the the next one you see there uh, is the nun, and that's what you think it is. It's a seed, okay. And so, obviously, it speaks of life that is to come. Uh, and then uh, the uh, uh, Samech there, numbers, with the 60 over it. that's like a thorn where it gets in and you can't dig it out. Number 70 is pretty obvious. The letter is ayn. <laughs> it might sound like "I, just, just in case you're wondering. But, and then the, there's the pay we were talking about. That's literally a mouth. I know it's, you'd say, well, I don't look like anybody's mouth, I know, but that's, that's how they did it. Sade, you can see here, which means "path." Um, so you can see there's the straight path, and then it curves off. That's what the word tzadeh means, and it's the root uh, uh, the, the primary letter in mitzvah. There it is, tzadeh, the M, the mitzvah, mitzvah, which is commandment. And remember, I told you the commandment is, and the command as we understand it as Americans, a commandment was direction. Well, you see, there's a path. You see, it's all, see, this is where we've messed it up. Okay, the next one there, and I know this is hard to understand, but that's the horizon. I know you say, well, why is it turned on the side? We don't know. Nobody knows why, but that's the way they wrote it. You have clearly the resh there, you can see, is a head, which is exactly what it means. The head, first prince, okay? And then number, uh, the 300 there, the sheen, that looks like our W. Uh, you can see there, what you're looking at is teeth, Okay? That's what you're seeing there, is the drawing of the teeth. And then it, it means to destroy, the consume, but it's also the signature. Because when you're talking to somebody, we've talked about this before, you always tend to look at their teeth, okay? And that's what this is about, and the talf is obvious, it's a cross. And it, of course, means sign, a mark, or covenant. So, so this is how it all plays out. So, you know, it's not like you need to memorize this. There will be a test, by the way, but... Uh, <laughs> You don't need to memorize this, just to familiarize you with this as we we move through so you know when we're talking about this where I'm getting these things from. It's all coming from here, okay? That's what we understand. Now we're just gonna look at some really other cool things about the language before we get into breaking down the verses. I was actually going to do that today and leave the cool stuff for later, but I thought, not, not, not that it, everything's not cool, but I thought, you know what, to set the stage more, we're going to do these things. And again, I, I know I say it so often, but I, this absolutely fascinates me. And I hope it does you as well. So there's some interesting things. That is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, okay? Now, if you're in, reading it in the Hebrew, it says, Bereshit bara elohimet, ve'et Okay? That's what it looks like in the Hebrew, in the modern Hebrew. Underneath it and this was a pain, let me tell you. Underneath it, this uh, is how you would say the exact same thing in the pictograph or the ancient language. The first one is Bereshit bara Elohim et It says the same thing. Now, here's why this is really interesting. We know later on in Genesis that before the Tower of Babel, the scripture tells us that the whole world spoke one language. This is how they would have communicated it. Okay? So this is how they would have written this down. When Adam wrote the accounts that he passed on to Seth and they would write these things down that made their way onto the boat with Noah, which later Moses would come and, and uh, uh, would edit. Uh, this, is what, this is what it looked like definitely prior to Babel. So this is what it looked like when the whole world spoke one language. But now Babel happens. We're going to make our name great. We're going to build this, temp, uh, this, this temple and we're going to set in the heavens like God and we're going to do all that to which God said, uh, no. And what does he do? He confuses the languages. This is where we've got to do And we read in the next chapter how the earth is divided. It's split up now. So these letters... Are carried with these people because this is what they could. But instead of uh, you know, instead of the uh, you know the, the descendants of Shem, instead of it being Bereshit, let's say the people that would end up coming uh, the uh, the uh, Chinese, okay. Instead of being Bereshit in the Hebrew, it would still be written like that. But obviously they don't say Bereshit. They would say Tang. or you know, it's whatever, okay, whatever it is. Uh, if if the, the word bara, that second word there, if they were taking it to Germany, it would, you, know, you know, you get the idea. So the letters were the same, but they're pronounced differently now because the languages have, the, have, have come into being. But this is the writing that we have. Now you understand why Chinese and some of these others still use pictographs and even Egyptian, we call them hieroglyphs. They're all still pictured. Where do you think this comes from? It's just a coincidence. I mean, come on. So that's why this is really important for us to understand. Now, remember back to Zephaniah. What's God going to do? He's going to restore. He's going to bring back to the nations those that were dispersed to China, to Germany, to wherever they went. He's going to bring them back to a what? Pure language. Oh, so he's going to bring us all back to the starting point. Which because of man's arrogance at Babel, the nations separated. And that's where we're going to be, by the way, Sunday morning. So you'll hear a little bit of this again. Because in Sunday morning, as we conclude Matthew's gospel, we're going to see what's called the Great Commission. All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, 18, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples of who? All nations. Oh, what nations? The nations that now exist apart from God in language and culture and certainly geography. All of those nations, Jesus said, the ones that were dispersed, your job, church, is to go... To those nations. And you're to talk about these things. And you're to teach them all of the things that I have taught you. You're to represent me to the nations. Why do we have to go to the nations? Because of Babel. God is going to restore. So we go out with the message into the nations. We call it missions. That's why we're involved in Belize and Mozambique and a couple of places in Mozambique and in Kenya and all of the other places that you guys know about. That's why we do that. We're doing what Jesus told us to do. We're involved in bringing the nations back. So that's why this particular, the ancient, you see, is so significant because it cannot be manipulated that's what's interesting. Now, am I saying that when God said he's going to restore a pure lip or a pure language that he's going to take us back to the ancient Hebrew? I don't have a clue. But I know the language, whether it's represented by modern Hebrew, paleo-Hebrew, or ancient Hebrew, either way, that language is the pure language. Because of the, the multifaceted uh, the depth that it has, which is in incom- no, no other no other uh, language is comparable. It just it just isn't. It's just the way that it is, okay? So, so that's what you see there. That's what it looks like. And remember again, we're, we're reading Hebrew, so we're reading right to left, okay? So here's what it says. This is what this is what it says. This is what's called, in case you don't know, I know some of you probably do. This is what's called a transliteration. So if we were to take those Hebrew letters and put them into an English format, this is what they would look like. So that's how you say the first word, Bereshit. Bereshit. Bara Elohim et et Now notice the red on the two. Keep that in mind. I know some of you already know where this is going. Okay? So that's the transliteration. But we need to make it, have it make sense in English. So we, we, Technically should reverse it, but you get the idea. So here's what Bereshit means, in beginning, not in the beginning, in beginning. And remember, this isn't a time reference. It's an eternal reference. It's that it always was there. Okay. Bara is the next word created. We talked about that last week. Elohim is God. Et cannot be translated into the English language. As, as a grammatical word, it functions as an identifier but it has no meaning. So again, that comes into play really. And so HaShemayim is the heavens. Uh, et is and, and. And then there's the et. We're going to talk about all this, so don't worry about it right now. And then HaEretz. Ha, the. Same with HaShemayim. The is ha. HaEretz is, um, is the earth. So you have the heavens and the earth. Okay? So that's what's how we're breaking this down. Okay. Now what's interesting about this is in and an understanding of this, just now remember, we're, this is the only the first verse of the scripture. <laughs> that's it. We don't have to go any further. It tells us everything we need to know, which is again what this study is about. Notice, that it's telling us in the core of the when, you remember we're, we're going backwards because we're following the flow so we don't confuse ourselves. We're looking at the when, we're looking at the what God did, when God did it, what God did, who did it, of course, it's God, and the why and the where. Why did he do all of this? To reveal who he is in both the heavens and in the earth. So, so in those words of Genesis 1.1, we see all that God has established. If you want to know what, if you want to know why, if you want to know when, if you want to know where, it's all right there. What the scripture is about. Okay? Now, once again, you're going to get familiar with this. Oops, I forgot to do the red on the other one. Okay? Now is the key and important part. How many words in the Hebrew? Seven. Huh. What is the number seven? It is not perfect. Get perfect out of your brain. Absolutely. It's complete. How do we know? In seven days, God finished creation and he ceased because it was complete. Now, the virtue of being complete is perfection, but that's not what it, what it implies. It's, it's talking about completion. So in those first seven words of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we have the complete revelation of everything that God wants us to know. Remember Isaiah chapter six? If you wanna know the, begin, the end, look at the beginning. I already told you what I was gonna do. How? Right here. Now wait till we start breaking this down. It gets, it gets amazing, okay? So now I keep saying it gets amazing. It's all amazing. I gotta stop saying that. I'm gonna wear the word out. But notice what God has done here. Because this, this, there's no way this cannot be by design, folks. It just has to be. This isn't coincidence. It's impossible. Notice, now notice number four, et, um, uh, the et, the aleph-tav, is central. Everything hinges off that. Now, just in case you're wondering, we already know who the aleph-tav is, right? It's Jesus. He said, I am the first and the last, aleph-tav, I am the alpha and the omega, he is number four. That's who he is. Everything hinges off of him. Okay? So notice that there are three words before the, uh, the, the, the uh, Aleph Tov, and then there are three words after. Gosh, how amazing. Right? Just a, what a coincidence. Well, if you look at the first word, and you look at the seventh word, uh, the, the seventh word, I'm sorry, the first word has six letters. The seventh letter, the seventh word has four letters, which totals six and four? Ten. Yeah, you guys are fast. So, yeah. Now, there's a reason for this. Okay? Where are we finding these words just to know? They're in Genesis. What is Genesis called? It's the book of the beginnings, but where does it find its place? What's this the first verse of? Torah. Ooh. How many instructions did God give in Torah? Torah. Ah, oh, maybe there's a connection. Okay, now, in the second word, there's three letters. In the sixth word, there's three letters. In the third word, there's five letters. In the fifth word, there's five letters. How many letters are in the fourth letter, or fourth, fourth word? Two. Three plus five on both sides, plus the two of the eight, give us Ten. No matter how you're looking at this, you're pointing back to ten. And then remember, now it's complete. Everything we need to know is right here. This is really amazing. What is so eight uh, uh, is the, uh, the 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 second and third, the fifth and sixth word. Eight speaks of those that they add up to eight without the aleph Tov. They speak of creation or new creation and beginning in Genesis chapter one. This is, this is it's just really incredible. The number 10 is divine, divine ordinance. So God has given his instruction and his ordinance is given to us in instructions that equal, equal 10. So in, in all of this, we're seeing that God is pointing us to Torah. He's pointing us to his instructions, which is exactly why Jesus said, don't think that I came to abolish Torah. I didn't come to abolish. I came to explain it. Not fulfill like you see in in your New Testaments. No, no. I came, didn't come to fulfill it. That means it's done. Is Torah done? No. Of course not. It's God's instructions. How can that be done? So, so it's speaking of this whole thing, and you get this, so God is pointing us to Torah, and he's speaking of all of this, that how it comes out to play as being a new beginning or a new creation. You see, when you come to Torah, when you understand the instructions of God, which point clearly to Jesus Christ, and you embrace him as your Savior, what do you become? A new creation. It's really interesting. When you, I mean, we could just keep going and going and going. You get the idea. Okay? But it gets even better. There's the menorah, the seven branched candlestick. Remember our study in the tabernacle when we looked at it? Huh? There's seven branches, there's seven words. To Genesis chapter 1. There they are. Okay? What's the significant one? Well, you know, the middle, the Shemesh the center, the one that everything hangs on. And of course, who is the it? Who is the first and the last? Who is the aleph and the tav and the Alpha and the omega? Jesus. So this all hinges. That's what I said earlier. He's the pivot point for all of this. Okay. Now look at what happens in the first three words. This is all dealing with the invisible side of things. That again, this is not speaking of Bereshit. It is not speaking per se of time and beginning. It's talking about that something that always was. The concept of bara is invisible because it comes because God speaks, and of course, God is invisible. But then you look at the thras- last three words, you get the Hashemayim. There again is the Aleph Tav, who is of course became man, um, and then you have the, ah, the the Haaretz. So you've got the visible. All in one. You've got everything that's happening, okay? Also, you have, what does it take for existence to be? Scientists to this day will tell you. Space, time, matter. Look at what you have. You have time, you have space, and you have matter. It's all there. It always has been there. Always we've just chosen not to look at it it's just it it just boggles the mind now trust me on this there this is this is the difficulty i share this with you guys a lot this is the difficulty of doing what god has asked me to do because all of this information that's just literally overwhelming and there is so much it's literally there's no end to it any of these studies could literally be a full lifetime study literally that's not that's not exaggeration it's true and so when you when you study these things and you you get all of this information you do all this research and all of this reading and you get all of this stuff and and this particular aspect of it and it's going to expand there was just so much there it's like it literally I look at my notes and it's just Marie will tell you sometimes I just go my head is just like it just it's as I can't take anymore and so now I've got to sit down because I believe God wants me to communicate this to you and I'm like how do you take this massive stuff and put it into some type of a format that's not overwhelming to anyone else it is a real challenge. We're just literally... You know, really in the shallow end of this stuff, we could go on and on and on here. We could get into the sephirot, uh, you know, and bring in this whole Kabbalah aspect of it, the mysterious side of this, which people say to stay away from. And I think that we should, clearly, but there's certainly something to be learned from that. And we could get into the these all of these different, I mean, there's so much, and so. I do all of this stuff and I put this down and just like now I just finished this slide and I'm, like, I'm thinking in my mind, I'm going, well, that went faster than, than I thought it would. I thought it would take longer. So maybe I should have. No, I didn't. But just so you know, so I, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm encouraging you to not just be satisfied with what we're getting here. Do your own research. There's nothing, I shared this before, there's nothing I'm finding that's not available for everyone, okay? Now I realize... It's not everybody's, quote-unquote, cup of tea. I get that. But if this is something that really trips your trigger, go after it. It is absolutely stunning to see all of these things. And then when you do that, you'll understand the difficulty of, of now sitting here for, you know, what is it, 45 minutes or an hour um, that I'm supposed to take and try to communicate all of this in this period of time. It's just it's, it's near impossible. You just, it's a real struggle for me to do it, because I just want to share everything I've found. But then you guys would be going, oh yeah, that was great. <laughs> That's what you'd be doing. How do I know? Because you do it all the time. You, think, you don't think I see you, but I do. All right. So here it is again. Now let's break this down even further. Watch this. Here I go. This is awesome. <laughs> it's just this. The rabbis, Throughout from the days of Moses have understood the days of creation as ages of man. Okay. Now if you remember back, for those of you that were here in our Revelation study, we looked to some degree at this, but not from this angle. It's the same stuff, but just coming at it from a different side. Okay. So here's what we're talking about. If you look at day one, And you look at that being the first millennia, the first thousand years of creation now being complete. Remember, it was completed at day seven. Uh, That that first uh, is it can be represented in the first day, therefore the first millennia. Obviously, then logically, day two would be the second millennium. Okay? Day three would be the third millennium, and then, huh, There it is again, day four, the fourth millennium. From, if you look at the days of creation and you understand this whole Hebraic number system counting, jubilees and stuff like that, guess when Jesus showed up on the earth after creation? 4,000 years? How long ago was that for us? 2,000 years? When is he coming back? 6,000 years? Oh. Yeah, anyway. So, Day four. And of course, this is where light and dark are separated. In case you're wondering what day four was, light and darkness, imagine that. Okay? And then what does the scripture say? This is Jesus speaking in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, right? Nick, listen, man. This is the condemnation. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light. You see, when Jesus shows up in the millennia that he's supposed to show, show up as that middle point, as that hinge point, light and darkness become opposed to one another because he is light. That's what he just said. John chapter one speaks of this. I mean, 1 John, all of these places which deal with Jesus as that light and it just show, shows that shows up that he happens to show up in the fourth millennium, and the very as if you're looking at the days of creation, on the very day God separates light from darkness, it's just amazing. Okay, of course, then day five is a thousand years, and day six, of course, there's another that's got the uh, the, the Aleph Tav in it um, is. Uh, uh, the sixth millennium and then of course the seventh millennium I tried to put it in gold that's as gold as I could find um, because it speaks of, of the seventh day of creation which was what? Sabbath but it also speaks of the kingdom now look at this a day as a thousand years didn't we read that somewhere in the scripture? absolutely Peter Second Peter 3 beloved Let not this one thing be hidden from you. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day. Oh, Peter was just, you know, he was using hyperbole, Rick. Was he? Peter was a Jew who sat under the teaching of rabbis, who understood what we just said. You and I have never been told this, or at least most of us. You don't think Peter knew this? You don't think Peter's rabbis had taught him that the days of creation are equal, uh, the uh, break down into the millennia as God has worked what he has done with what he has created? You don't think Peter knew that when he wrote those words? This is how we in the West come up to say, well, Peter was just you giving us an example. No, Peter was telling us what the rabbis have been telling us all along from the days of Moses. This is how God reckons time. And it's by the moon and its cycles which divide up the months of the years that make up the decades, the centuries that make up that millennia. It's all there. There's, there's, again, there's, what, we, what did we read last, in the, last week in Ecclesiastes? There's nothing new under the sun. It's all here. Peter told us it was there. Okay. So on this, how many years from a biblical perspective? And I know people argue with this, even Christians. That how far are we today removed from creation? Six thousand years. You can't possibly believe that. I do. I don't see how you can possibly not believe it if you say you're a believer. Well, there's rocks that the rocks don't tell you. Squat, dude. What tell you about the rocks is the person that's measuring them, right? Well, this rock is, you know, is monolithic, whatever. It's paleolithic, it's whatever. Oh, and how do you know that? Well, because the, because the paleontologist, the fossil guy. So Mr. Rock Guy, how do you know that rock is that old? Well, we talked to the fossil guy, and the fossil guy said, these are the fossils, and this is the age where that rock is found. Oh, really? So Mr. Fossil Guy, how old, is, how old are the fossils? Well, they're whatever, say 10,000 years. Great. So how do you know how old those fossils are? Well, because the rock guy tells us. What? Common sense, people. It's got to enter the picture with some time. And you can see all these guys now. With you guys realize there's like 130 some odd volcanoes active on earth today? I told punch it in. Google it. On the earth today, it's, things are literally out of control. And I just watched the deal the other day. It was fascinating. And man, I don't know what these guys get paid. But they're all geared up. And they go with these buckets with water. And they scoop literally molten lava and put it into this bucket so that they can measure, you know, and stuff like that. This is, you know, basalt and all of that stuff, molten or lava rock and stuff like that. So here's this rock that's just come out and it's molten lava, you know, it's like soup and they put it in there and they take it back there and they go, oh, look, it's 10 billion years old. It just showed up. How is it possible to be 10 billion years old? And by the way, the next guy that measures says, oh, no, no, he's wrong. It's 12 billion years old. And then the third guy measures it and says, no, you're both wrong. It's 8 billion years old. Am I like the only one going, what? These are supposed to be smart people. And they're dumber than a box of rocks. <laughs> Pardon the pun. This is the, the foolishness that we have placed ourselves in because we rejected the God of the Scripture. This happens everywhere. Carbon dating, uh, potassium, argon dating, all of this stuff, it all points back to a less than 10,000 years, folks, no matter what they say. You can't possibly believe that those mountains and that valley was carved out in, in a few thousand years. Well, did you ever hear about Mount St. Helens? Mount St. Helens carved a deal one quarter, I think it's one quarter, one third the size of the Grand Canyon in 30 days. So, so much for the Colorado River trickling through the Grand Canyon for billions of years, which now give us the Grand Canyon. That thing could have happened instantaneously. And by the way, it did after this thing called the flood. So, you know, you, you see, that's the foolishness. If you're going to laugh at me for that, I have no problem with that. Because in my opinion, you're the dork. Because you ain't got common sense. And I'm talking pastors now. There were pastors out there saying, and now you guys have heard me say this, well, science has proven that the earth is billion years old. Science ain't proven squat, dude. Well, what about red shift? Now we could, you know, here we go into all this other stuff. You know, the exploding star. You know, we could measure it, and we know it's, you know, light years and stuff like that. Except Mr. Star-measuring guy. Where are you measuring from? The earth. And you don't think time is different out there? Then how can we have movies about people going to Mars and come, I can't remember, what's the movie? Matthew McConaughey. Ah, what was it called? The Earth, of course, man has destroyed Earth. And we are, because we're idiots. Um, And Matthew McConaughey is sent out on this mission to find a place to take people. But they have to make the mission fast. Now this is in the movie, which is trying to promote science. See if you catch this. I actually broke all this down, literally, and showed it in church a few years back. What was the name of it? Interstellar. Interstellar. So you got to get that because for every month, I think, I'm, I'm, I, don't misquote me, but it's something like this. It's been a long time since I looked at this. For every month that you're out here, it's two out in space, it's two years here on Earth. Now think about that. The same guys that are telling us that time is out there, you know, Einstein with time is relative, which is why they're trying to get rid of Einstein, in case you didn't know, because of that. So let me get this straight, okay? If time on earth is measured differently than it is out there, how do you know that star exploded billions of years ago, light years ago? Because because if you're measuring it from the earth, you just told us it's different on earth. Right? How does, do you ever stop and think about this? This is the stuff that for me, it's just like logic. I mean, I'm, look, I'm not a brilliant guy. It's just, you, you kind of noodle it through and you go, what? One time when, when I was in, this was, I want to say it was 08 or so. And I was in Thailand ministering to the guys, the Akkad there uh, uh, on, on the Burmese border. And, and, and I, again, I don't remember this was like 08. But what happened was because they're 13 hours ahead of us right? So when I got on the airplane and I flew, and again, I don't remember the exact time frame, but whatever it was, I left, uh, I left Bangkok airport at two o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon, flew all night long, all of these hours, landed at LA International Airport, and it was six o'clock the same day. Two hours had elapsed from here. While I was in that plane, trust me, it was longer than two hours, okay? Do you know how many bags of peanuts I consumed? How many bags of pretzels I consumed? Standing in the back of the galley, because when you're my size, you don't get to sleep on those flights no matter what they say, because you're like this. So, yeah. So that, what for me, was a miserable flight. Time-wise, depending on where you are, because time is relative, I landed two hours after I took off. So I'm thinking about that, and I'm thinking, and you're going to tell me that that star out there has been out there, how the crud do you know that? You can't possibly know that. So you get the idea. So, so the days, it, it's, it's really, truly interesting. Because what that tells us, well, we're going to see why that day six, think of the number six, what does the number six represent? Man, yeah. Ah, there's so much here. I, I got to keep going. Actually, I thought I was going to get out of here early. I think I probably lied to you. Um, so we're going to look at it now, put it in the format we can understand the right way to read things, left to right. I don't know why anybody would read it the other way, but they do. But anyway, here's the proper way No, It's the best way for us to understand. Watch what happens day one. Darkness is night. What happened in that first millennia? You had Adam with the fall bringing sin and darkness in. And you had Enoch show up in that first millennia bringing righteousness and light in in the same day, in that millennia represented by that day. Let me put it that way. Day two, the waters were separated. What happened in the the second millennia after the creation? The flood. The waters that God separated from, from above and from below because of sin, what did God do with the flood? And the great fountains of the deep opened and the the waters from above came down and we had a flood. Oh, so those days actually kind of correlate to things that we know from Scripture. Yeah. Day three was the creation of the dry land and the seas. Eretz, Shammayim, right? The dry land and the sea. What happened in the third millennium? Moses leads the people out of Egypt across the Red Sea on dry land in the third century. Or third, yeah, third millennia, sorry. Day four, the sun, moon, and the stars are created. Messiah comes in that fourth millennia. How was what accompanied his birth? The sun, the moon, and the stars. With the magi, and the moon, knowing it was tabernacles, it was the full moon when he was born. You get the idea? So it speaks of his first coming, that fifth, fifth millennia. Then there's, I'm sorry, fourth millennia. Then on day five, you got the land and sea that were created uh, on day three are now filled um, with, uh, with the sea creatures and the land creatures and stuff. And what happens in the seas? Well, you could see there that Messiah is baptized in water. And then of course the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus because you got the fish and the fowl, in other words, is what happened on that day. The fish and the fowl filled the seas and the land. Okay. What happened at Jesus' baptism? The Holy Spirit comes in a fowl, a dove. And how does Jesus send the disciples out into the world? Matthew chapter twenty eight. Fishers of men. I mean, it's it's just just incredible when you when you start to see this stuff. That everything we've seen uh, is just—it's just telling us everything that God has done is doing and has yet to do. Okay, day a thousand, or uh, day six, which is uh, which ends the the uh, the uh, sixth millennia. Okay, there's creatures of man. You have man's rebellion, and at the end of the age of man is Messiah's return and His second coming. The second time we find the Aleph Tav. And by the way, back looking back at the sun, the moon, and the stars, uh, the, the two lights that were to govern the, uh, the heavens, right? There was a greater light and there was a lesser light. The lesser light, the moon, represented like the, the, the idea of David and that would, there would be a descendant of David who would be greater than David, which would be representative of the sun, which is, of course, the Messiah. I mean, it just, it just goes on and on. It just, it just keeps going. So this is the end of man, when the Lord comes back. Man will have done his thousand, his his six thousand years, which is exactly what Revelation tells us. When this one that is completely opposed to God shows up, how is he going to be identified? By the number of men. Man had 6,000 years to get it straight. and He hasn't done so. So the the Messiah is going to come back. When he comes back, day seven of creation, of course, was the Shabbat, the Sabbath. It's a day of rest. Okay? So on the Sabbath, of course, now we have the Messiah returning at the end of day six and beginning day seven. With the Sabbath, we have Messiah's rule. We call it the kingdom age. How long is the kingdom age? what What do we call the reign of Christ? The millennial reign of Christ. A thousand year reign. Why? Because there's a thousand years to straighten out what man has failed for 6,000 years beginning with Adam. That's, that's all that's going on. And since that day four, the followers of Jesus have gone out into the world, which we talked about in the Great Commission, bringing people in. And this is where the whole concept of new creation and stuff comes in. Now what's interesting about this, and this will close with this, is that it's not identified in the scripture, but the sages, the rabbis have always taught that there is an eighth, but it's not a millennium because it goes beyond time. So at the end of the thousand years, what happens? Well, Revelation tells us, Revelation chapter 22, we move from 7,000 years. Oh, by the way, real quick, like if you're, you read it in the English, the age that is now and then the age that is to come. In the Hebrew it's olam hazeh that's the 6000 years the age that is in now and Peter tells us this that's olam hazeh the world or the age that is now is going to be is different than olam hava, the, the age that is to come what is the age that's to come the messianic age but it's an age because it can be measured it's millennial it's a 1000 year reign Okay, there's a thousand years. What happens after that? Again, Revelation tells us we move from time frame. There's a new heavens. There's a new earth. There's no time. There's no sun. There's no moon, that which we measure time by because we've entered into eternity. There's the eternal. Okay, so that's the eighth day. Now, how many of you know, tell me if you think this is a coincidence, what is the symbol and has always been for the, uh, the symbol of the infinite or the eternal? It's an eight. That means infinity. Well, that's just coincidence, Rick. Is it? Is it that anybody that knows this knows that infinity is related to that eight which follows the seven ages of man? whether it's away from the king or the king sitting in the presence, that can't be coincidental. It can't, it's impossible. It can't be. That the sign for infinity looks like an eight, which would be the next, again, you can't call it an age, but the next, you can't even call it a period, uh, the eternity that you're going to enter and it's represented by an eight that, I don't know, follows seven when everything is complete. Then we move into infinity. We move into eternal. It's just, it's just amazing. So, so again, w- what you see in the seven words of this first verse are just stunning. And I, and I, I know I keep saying, it, but I'm telling you, there is so much more. There just is. But we just can't do it. So we've looked at sort of the, the introductory and sort of taking the big the the broader perspective of looking at the Genesis chapter one, those first seven words. Next week, we'll actually begin breaking down the words. Each word by each letter and a combination of those letters within that word that tell us the gospel. There's no other way to say it. The death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in the first verse. Of Genesis. Not in the English, not in Korean, not in the, trans, uh, the Spanish or the German or the Chinese or in any other translation. Only in the Hebrew, you know, the pure language. Only in that can you find these things. It is breathtaking to me. So we'll actually start looking at the words next week, um, breaking them down, as I said, letter by letter. And again, If you're like me, you're just going to go, whoa. It's just absolutely stunning. Amen? All right, let's pray. Actually, I did pretty good. I'm a little bit early. Marie would say I'm late because it's after 7, but I try to shoot for 7.15, just so you know. All right. Well, Father, thanks again for this evening, Lord. We're just fascinated with your word simply because it's your word. This is what was communicated to us, Lord. And regardless of the reasons that we haven't seen this before, we're seeing it now. And I pray, God, that, that it just does something within us, each of us, as we look at these things. Again, not to go ooh and awe, oh, but to just go, wow, you have literally told us everything we need to know. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing secret. There isn't anything that hasn't been done or has been done that hasn't been revealed. It's all right here for us. And so, Lord, as we continue on this journey to look at your word and to be staggered, fascinated, astonished, whatever adjective we want to put on there, we just pray, Lord, that you would continue to dazzle us with your brilliance as we consider your your genius in the first few words of the book of Genesis. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.